Welcome to Nutrition Unmeasured, a podcast for dietitians, students, but also parents, caregivers, and everyone in between looking for non-restrictive, body-inclusive ways to be nourished and live well. Hosted by me, Gina Forster, an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor from Columbus, Ohio. Go back. Welcome back to the Nutrition Unmeasured podcast. Today's sponsor, well, it's is me. My personal intuitive eating and wellness program is sponsoring today's episode. Allow me to be your personal coach through the 10 principles of intuitive eating. During this journey, you will receive a workbook to have throughout, a helpful body positivity journal, access to me at any time, and bi-weekly one-on-one calls to keep you accountable to yourself and to keep you motivated to change and find peace with food and your body. Before getting started today, I'd love to ask for a review if you're loving this podcast. Reviews only take a few seconds and really help me grow the listenership. So of course, I'd appreciate it. As far as updates since last time, just busy. That's that's really my, my word of the summer is busy. Generally speaking, summers are not very busy, but I will tell you this summer, for some reason, I've just been, maybe because I'm trying to build a business, that's probably the reason, but very, it's just extremely busy uh, in a good way, of course. Uh, Let's see, we're getting ready to to go on a camping trip, which is our our yearly camping trip with uh, my husband's cousin and their family, which I'm super excited about. And then my husband's going to be out of town for a few days, which, um, you know, is always a struggle, but I think I'll, I'll manage to power through. It's also easier now that my kids are a little bit older. You know, I hate that they're getting older and they're growing up, but, you know, with that comes more independence, which of course, um, I appreciate. So, okay. Today I am talking with Dahlia Kinsey about Dahlia's book, Decolonizing Wellness. Right. We've got Dahlia Kinsey with us today. Dahlia is a queer black registered dietitian, keynote speaker, the creator of the Body Liberation for All podcast, and author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal your self image, and achieve body liberation. On a mission to spread joy, reduce suffering, and eliminate health disparities in the LGBTQIA. In BIPOC community, Dahlia rejects diet culture and reach it, teaches people to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool to counter the damage of systemic oppression. Dahlia works at the intersection of holistic wellness and social justice, continually creating wellness tools and resources that center the most vulnerable individuals that hold multiple marginalized identities. Dahlia's work can be found at DahliaKinsey.com, which we'll put in the show notes. Dahlia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, what I'd like to do, just so listeners can kind of get to know you a little better with just some, I don't know, get to know you questions is ask some get to know you questions. So I've got two that I like to ask uh, since we are both dietitians and we're humans that are surrounded by food. <laughs> I'd like to know, what is your favorite food of all times? It, I think it has to be chickpeas. I mean, it sounds random, but there's nothing else that I eat more often. So just based on frequency, chickpeas. Okay. What is your favorite way? I, I have to say that is random. I, I, <laughs> what do you, I mean, I know I love chickpeas. Uh, what, what's your favorite way to use? I think of hummus, but what's your favorite way to use chickpeas? Usually just plain, whether it's on a salad or it's literally just the chickpeas okay. <laughs> like right okay. out of the can, like a weirdo. No, I, I am actually a huge fan of, of beans in general out of the can. I just like like the salty and soft. I I'm, I'm a fan. Just, I don't know. Chickpeas. I don't, I never think of chickpeas. So thanks for the I reminder. I cook them from dry once or twice. And I just really preferred the can, especially the, not that I want to hype up Goya because they've had some We'll just say some issues. Uh-huh. Um, the quality of their canned chickpeas, stellar. Their politics, mm, not so much. Wait, their what? What was the second thing you said? Their politics. politics yeah. I mean, you would think if you sell canned food, you could manage to just like be neutral, pretend you like everybody, but oh well. But those those chickpeas are delicious. 
Okay. I might have to get them a try. No, I'm a huge fan of eating uh, beans out of a can, but I just, I don't know, chickpeas. I just, I'm going to have to give them another try. I mean, I love chickpeas. Don't get me wrong, but I'll try it out of a can sometime. <laughs> okay. This, we're sort of changing gears a little bit here. The best vacation that you've ever had or place that you've visited? I feel like that's a hard one because you have so many different types of experiences when you travel. The most beautiful place I've ever been where I just felt like I cannot believe people get to live here was Alaska. But, you know, weather, not sure. (laughs) I would go back. But I think being in St. Petersburg, Russia, on a bridge above the Neva River, just watching the chunks of ice float by the person I was with was from there. And they said, you know, as a kid, they always remember you stand on the bridge, you look down and it feels like you're moving because of how quickly the chunks of ice go by. And there's something about talking to someone who's speaking to you in their second or third language, the simplicity and the directness, like the way sometimes to me, everything sounds like poetry. So when he asked me if I wanted to go for a walk, which, oh my God, so awesome that that's a thing that people do. Hey, do you want to go for a walk? No one's ever asked me that here anyway. And he said, do you want to go fly on the bridge? I'm like, what does that mean? But it really had that sensation. So that stands, that really stands out to me, but I love to travel. So it's really hard to narrow it down, but Alaska is amazing. Okay. Alaska. I I mean, I also love to travel, but I will say I have not been to very many places outside of the United States. Uh, Alaska, I know, is part of the United States, but it doesn't feel like it is. I would love to go sometime. I know I have a friend who actually lived there for about a year, and just looking at her photos was just, yeah, remarkable. And just the way that you explained it, I can, I think I got to go. Really? All right. Is there anything else that you would like us to know about you? Hmm. I didn't know if this, I think this question might be coming later, but I was thinking a lot about the, what are the terms that friends would use to describe me? I tried to look it up because I know I've had that in like a coaching class before as an exercise and I've told friends before, but Facebook messenger failed me and the search yielded no results. But (laughs) I think something that when people perceive you as an activist or maybe somebody who's maybe obsessed with systemic oppression, they think you're like this sad, angry person. <laughs> like All you do is move around, like shaking your fist at the sky. But I think my, the people closest to me think of me more as like a crunchy granola person who's always trying to be outside in the grass, but also terrified of spiders. Like just another, I'm just another ridiculous human being. You know, I'm just a person who holds multiple things. So yes, I am obsessed with systemic oppression, but I'm also into watching Rick and Morty for hours and just laying around on the weekend. And Rick and Morty's definitely problematic in some ways too. So not perfect, a regular person, a quirky person. I think my friends would just say um, funny and random. Oh my gosh. I love that. Sounds like we are one in the same, <laughs> um, at least in that regard. I, I So I had a question in there that you probably received when I sent you the questions about what are your values. I actually ended up deleting that, but you answered that and that's totally fine. So Brie Campos, I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Uh, she is a self-image therapist or counselor, and she helps people work through self-image um, struggles, and which we could all use. Let's be honest. Yeah. And one of her, well, I took one of her trainings, and one of the questions she suggests that we ask anyone that we're working with on self-image is, you know, to to focus on what your three values are. And just like what you said, like when she said that, I'm kind of like, well, what does that even mean? And then she described it as, well what would your best friends or your closest family members say about you? How would they describe you? Uh, So I I think that you answered that perfectly. Um, And I think just all of what you said comes out in your book as well. Uh, I just really enjoyed, well, we'll get into it, but all of what you said, I can, I can totally believe uh, just from, from your words um, uh, in your book. So. Oh, I love that it comes across because I felt like when I was listening to, 
the person who did the audio, which I did get to weigh in on that. And that is the person I chose. But then we didn't have any interaction while they were going through the recording process. And when I listened back to it, some things, her tone was so serious. Mm. And I'm like, oh, when I said that, I was giggling. (laughs) I'm like, I hope it comes across that people can hear my, my voice. So I am curious, actually, that brings me to a question, actually. Why, why did you choose not to record it yourself? You know, I, that one has multiple layers. I didn't even ask. I wanted to read it myself, but I have a speech impediment and not everyone can hear it, but because (laughs) like people in my family, people who've known me since childhood, they can hear it. And I've, once or twice, even as an adult, had someone point out like, hmm, you know, you're not saying that right, right? And I tried to get it together like, okay, well, that's how it comes out. So that's as close as you're going to get. So because I was in my own head, like, oh, they probably didn't ask me to read it because of this speech impediment. Oh, I'm probably not good enough. Just the usual stuff that comes up that you didn't even know you were still carrying with you from childhood that stops you from even asking. So I don't even know if it would have been an option, but because I thought, well, I just don't speak clearly enough. They probably don't want me to read it. I didn't even ask. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Thank you for opening up. I know you actually did. I think you mentioned that in the, in the book. Now that, now that you're saying that, I feel like you did say that in the book that you had a speech impediment, but I, right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It sounds familiar to me. I did. Well, it's so funny because I feel like my younger brother is the one who gives me the hardest time about it. Because of when course. we were in school in the 80s, um, and my mom, it's largely a cultural thing. I think it's a very Caribbean thing to raise children to be very independent. And you see kids as young adults in training. So you give them a lot of responsibilities and you might give them more autonomy than maybe somebody born and raised and all their families been in the United States for generations. So she asked me, do you want to go to speech? People couldn't understand what my younger brother was saying. So he didn't get to choose. They were like, you're going, nobody knows what you're saying. (laughs) But for me, she felt like it was more subtle. So she asked me, do you want to go? But as small as I was, I'd already picked up on all of the ableism cues that they were putting down in the school system. And I said, heck no, I don't want to go do anything with the special kids that people treat like they're less than or they're not as smart. I said, let, you know, my little brother can go. I'm not going. And years later, (laughs) there's some words that still just don't want to come out right. And that is one of the many effects that ableism has had on me. Yep. My daughter's eight. She already says it when I, when I suggest that she go get help with reading, you know, in the middle of the school day and nope, no way. I don't want to, I don't want to stand out, you know, as being different and ugh. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about your book. You wrote the book, Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal yourself image and achieve body liberation. So I read this book as part of a training I did with Charlie Go Lightly uh, with Moxie Mind. I will put that link in the show notes for anyone who's interested. I do not identify as any of the identities listed in your title or really have any marginalized identities at all. So at times I was wondering if I was even meant to read this book. So Dahlia, who did you write this book for? I wrote it for folks that are always overlooked that I have a lot in common with. So queer folks, gender nonconforming folks, Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, because I have never picked up a book that was written for people who are both queer and not white. And all of the years that I loved self-help as a kid, every single book I read was written for straight, white, middle-class men and above. And then maybe more recently, like early aughts, there were more books from maybe a femme or assigned female at birth perspective, but again, very white. And then when it comes to wellness, there are, you know, books that have been out there for years that were written specifically with 
um, people of African descent from the United States in mind, but always very heteronormative. And usually if there's anything in there about gender norms, uh, very homophobic as well and very misogynistic, even if written by someone assigned female at birth, because there's just massive amounts of the, the patriarchy is very strong in the African-American community. And then also not just being Black American, being like a mixed culture kid. I really haven't ever seen that addressed either. So there are lots of things that were part of my lived experience that were never looked at. And while under the surface, you know, it was always like something that made me itchy and something I felt I wanted to address, I didn't feel compelled to stick my neck out there and address it. Because even like your daughter already knows, standing out is not always a safe thing to do. And it's something that a lot of us naturally avoid. Who wants to be ostracized or who wants to raise their hand and say, hey, everybody, I'm different. When that could mean being bullied, it could mean financial consequences. I just didn't, it didn't register that it might be worth the risk. But 2020, totally <laughs> broke me open and made me realize all the ways in which I was probably still running on some default messaging from childhood about how to stay safe as a Black person, how to stay safe as a queer person who people don't always clock as queer. That was doing me so much harm. And I was constantly stifling myself and code switching. And for people who aren't familiar with code switching, it's basically this pattern that most marginalized people have of changing their behavior based on who they're around for the sake of safety. So if you're a Black person, you may speak differently around your white coworkers. You may get extremely nervous or anxious when you're around other Black people who speak the same way when they're just with you as they do around white people. Because we've been trained and shown again and again that it is not always safe to be culturally distinct. You may be mocked or you may be passed over for opportunities. It really can run the gamut. And with the queerness, I was always trained to play it down, to ignore it, that, oh, yeah, maybe some people are born this way, but if you can pass, you should pass. But the stress of 2020 made me realize that if I can't be loyal to myself, if I can't have my own back, what do I have? And being silent about the ways in which I am different, isn't doing me any favors or garnering me any true protection because the stress that I felt dealing with COVID and dealing with the way people were responding to BLM, it was unbearable. I already have anxiety and was receiving treatment for that, but there is not enough Lexapro in the world (laughs) to help you get through a pandemic a surge in the civil rights movement, and then realizing you've surrounded yourself with people who don't get it and don't want to get it. So I have lots of people I was connected to on social media posting like, why can't we just get along? And the undercurrent of that is why can't the people who are being bullied and abused just shut up about it? Mm -hmm. It really isn't a desire to just get along. It's, I don't want to hear about it. It's not affecting me. And I just got so fed up with the unfairness of it all, knowing that people were dying during COVID because they've been exposed to chronic stress related to racism and homophobia and transphobia and fear of, and xenophobia, I forgot the word for a second. People were literally dying because they've been under so much stress for so long, while other people were saying, oh, it makes me uncomfortable when you talk about that. And I just was so fed up. I said, I don't care if it could mean death to set myself apart. I will not live this lie anymore. I will not pretend that I'm okay and unaffected by this. And I will not betray everyone else with the same shared identities by putting out something else generic about body positivity and ignoring all these other parts of my experience. Mm. Oh, that was beautiful. I, as you're saying this, I just want to say thank you because I, you know, of course, COVID was a monumental time for all of us, but as a white, you know, able-bodied cisgendered woman, I, 
it took COVID for me to also, and I hate to admit this, but here I go to see all this. Right. And I was so blind and, and I'm not blaming myself. I mean, I grew up in a very, I still live in a very white community. I'm surrounded by white coworkers and not just white. I mean, very, uh, just very, I don't don't even know what the right word is, but not diverse. Um, and so thank you. I, I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading and books like yours have just opened my eyes to, uh, what I want my children to see as well. Um, and what I will be passing down to them, hopefully. <laughs> I do. Thank you. I love that because that is something magical about books is that it can open you up to someone else's worldview or someone else's experience, even if you're not living like right beside them. And I have found it fascinating just through this growing awareness in the U.S. among people who are empathetic enough or compassionate enough to be concerned about other people's experience. If you didn't know, you didn't know. It can be frustrating when I know I've been asked to explain the Black experience literally since kindergarten. From the moment I entered a integrated space, honestly, I was raised in a very, very white dominated church. So I was already in an integrated space. But when I went into the public school system, they literally would put that labor on us as children. There was some teacher who got this wild idea that we should force the kids to sit beside a black kid. And I can't tell you like how repulsive it is in hindsight, like how wrong it is to put that pressure on a child. Since most of us before we got there, didn't even know um, people were going to make such a big deal about our skin color out in the world. A lot of us hadn't been told that yet because our parents thought maybe it was safe to delay that information. I'd already gotten a heads up with some things like you have to be careful. Um, You're not allowed to do the things that some other kids are able to do. Like someone may just reprimand a white child for taking a piece of gum. Someone might call the cops on a black child that takes a piece of gum, even if they're too young to even understand the concept of money. Like I've literally seen that. So your parents typically do try to explain it to you, but some parents choose not to. So anyway, so you're in kindergarten and it's being explained to you that some people find the very sight of you so repulsive that we have to make it a rule that they have to pick one of you to sit beside. And then on top of that, it's twisted that you start to see that if you're more assimilated, that all the white kids are going to pick you. So then people would fight over being able to sit beside the least offensive black person which again and again, it was me that they were fighting to sit beside. And how would I know that I was being raised to be a more assimilated type of Black person because that represented safety in my parents? And because we were in a very, very white dominated church, it was even mixed into our beliefs about what is God, what is holy, what is worldly, what is unacceptable. And in hindsight, it's very clear, all of the messaging was, if it's Eurocentric, it's neutral. If it's black, if it's anything non-white, then it is of the world. So I was very effectively whitewashed. And that's something I've had to reconcile with in, in adulthood, because as a child, you don't get to filter any of this messaging out. So anybody who's feeling guilt about beliefs they didn't know they held, you need to hold some compassion for yourself and know that if you weren't aware of it, it was most likely presented to you when you were too young to filter it out. So in the same way that I didn't get to opt into having this preference for Eurocentric things, people who were assigned whiteness didn't get to choose to see whiteness as neutral. It's part of the programming. But as an adult, it is our responsibility to push beyond those beliefs we didn't get to really vet. You know, we get to decide what are our values. We're adults now. We shouldn't be accepting things without questioning it anymore. But the growth really is ongoing and it is, it's been a wild ride. But you mentioned, you wondered if you should even be reading the book. And I would say absolutely, even though I had to get like psychological support 
to write a book as though white people were not watching, because that is a sense that you constantly get if you're a non-white person in the United States or a person who, when people see you on the street, they immediately perceive you as non-white. You literally always feel like you're being watched and people are always trying to control your behavior, whether it's people telling you you're laughing too loud at a restaurant and having a manager come over to your table to ask you to keep it down, whether it's, you know, being a little kid at a friend's pool and people asking you, do you actually belong here? Do you have the right to be here? I mean, it's the through line that constantly being monitored and feeling like well, we better watch what we're saying because there are consequences. If we offend anybody, even if all we're doing is stating the truth, it, it could be deadly. And even though I've never been physically assaulted for speaking the truth, we literally saw it on the news in 2020 and people who are closer to the civil rights experience because it's connected to their lived experience, you know that people have been murdered simply for stating the truth. So there's so many different ways you can pick up on fears. And I definitely had like that intense fear that if I speak the truth, especially in a field that is like 99.9% why, even though that's not the real statistic, (laughs) they felt like this could be very dangerous when people get angry. And in my experience, when white women get angry, it can be deadly. So while I had to work hard to write it as though I wasn't being watched by white people, I think it's very beneficial for white folks to see what might be said if I wasn't in the room, because there are some very sincere white folks who want to know more about what they've been missing, like what other people have been trying to say or explain. since probably the 1960s and before, mm-hmm. but sometimes people don't even feel safe telling you because I've been invited before to like, speak the truth, tell us what's really going on. And then gotten like a verbal and emotional beat down for speaking the truth after being given the green light. Mm-hmm. Mm. Gosh. Okay. You, you've said so much here and my, my brain is just, is racing. I will, I will say, you know, I, I'm going to ask you at the end to, for any more recommendations on further reading. Cause I do think, you know, you, you talk about safety and, and what in words that you're saying. And I feel like putting it down in a book is probably the safest way to do so, which, and also maybe one of the easier ways to let your thoughts be told to the world. Right. And there's so there are so many good books is what I'm trying to say. And I'm, and I'm just going through, I'm scrolling through what I've read. And I, I recently read, so you want to talk about race, which a lot of the stories that you're, you're talking about now, I, I'm relating back to that book. Have you read that? I haven't. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I'm, go, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name. Uh, I, I feel horrible. I-J-E-O-M-A. I-G-O-M-A. Oluo, I think. O-L-U-O. Great book. Uh, but anyway, a lot of the things that you just said is is exactly what she talks about in the book and is about also what you talk about in your book as well. And it's just, again, you know, as a white woman, reading those reading those stories is just so powerful and impactful. Um, so when I asked if I if I was wondering if I was meant to read that book, you know, I was sort of, you know, tongue in cheek in saying that I would never have stopped reading the book. Um, <laughs> I, I would. I think it's important it. for other people to hear, though, because there's certainly some people who they almost have no tolerance for anything that's not about white people. Yeah, and they wouldn't say those words. But I even saw that in my dietetic program. Literally, one day out of all of the days in the program, there was literally one day where a black professor invited in two business owners from a spice company. And during their presentation, they talked about some grant funding opportunities and sometimes like, um, I think VC funding, I don't know how they explained it. But anyway, they talked about how minority status sometimes could be something to be aware of when you're an entrepreneur looking for funding. And since it was all femme looking or female looking people in the room, they said, oh, being a woman qualifies you for some minority funding, but also if you're a black person, and they were saying that for the two of us that were in the room and people filed complaints because they said very briefly, they acknowledged something that wasn't about whiteness. 
And their complaint was, how could I even use that? Like, it was like, it wasn't even for me. Oh, I'm sorry. What about literally every other single day in the program? But I guess just screw me, right? I I had to pay for stuff that didn't ever center me or acknowledge my existence in a positive light, but that's okay for some of us. So I, I do think it's important to say, hey, I wasn't at the center of this book as a white person. And guess what, y'all? I survived. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I survived and might even read it again. Honestly, it's, it was that good. Uh, it was very impactful. So, so thank you. But I'm going to kind of um, roll in. I'm going to skip one of these questions because you, you keep bringing up just the fact that I know you said 99.9%, which isn't necessarily a, a true statistic, but I think in your book, you said less than 3% of registered dietitians in the United States are black. Now, let me read the whole quote. You said white supremacy, unchecked bias, and racism are the real reasons that less than 3% of registered dietitians in the United States are black. So I'm, I'm going to ask, why is this a problem? And why is this a problem, especially in this intuitive eating, body trust, body acceptance space? If you have internalized bias and you in general have bought into this belief that being in a white, small, abled body, preferably heterosexual, not lower income, is the best kind of body, it's going to come through. It's going to come through. And not everybody that you counsel has done enough work on like their own internalized stuff because we internalize stigma against ourselves even. And so you may not have contact with someone who's going to notice how your bias is affecting them in a negative way and call you out on it. That doesn't always happen, but the damage is still done because if you're not aware, all you can do is continue to perpetuate the harm this person has experienced in healthcare settings because you're just completely unaware of it or not willing to work on it. Because a lot of the racism that I encountered in the program and in the internship, these were not people that were trying to do better. These were people that resented that anyone ever asked them to think about somebody who's different from them. And I think a lot of people in dietetics who are not that way, who have been wondering, why aren't we moving forward with the diversity? They haven't reconciled with the fact that some of your peers, some of our peers don't want it to change. And if that is not challenged, then we are when we're trying to push diversity initiatives, we are welcoming people into an unsafe space. And that I think is something that most folks haven't been trained to think about. You say, oh, you want more diversity in any organization. Have you considered what it will be like for somebody who is a person of color or not heterosexual or not cisgender? What will it feel like for that person to be in this space? If you are the only welcoming person and you're not going to be like walking around with that person 24 seven, how will you shield them from additional harm? Going through the program was like a psychological nightmare and dealing with the microaggressions and having nowhere to take them and no one who would understand it. Like if I went outside of the program, of course, other black folks would say, why don't you leave? Like that sounds so toxic. You know, we've looked at what dietitians make. Are you kidding me? You're walking through fire for those garbage salaries? Like for what? (laughs) So that, I mean, that's another thing to consider. If the people you're trying to like pull into the program are maybe the first or the second generation to go to college, why would they consider a field in which 10 years into it, they'll be earning what other majors earned their first year out of undergrad. Why would people go into it when now we're adding the additional financial hurdle of the master's degree with no return on investment? Like the only thing the master's does is open more doors. Those salaries are still a full joke. So I think that's something people are reconciling with because the majority of my peers in the program 
did not need for their income to be sustainable. They didn't need a thriving income. They either already came from a little bit of money and a little bit of money could just mean somebody's left them a house. Somebody had a college fund for them. They didn't need for their degree to make it easy to pay off the student loan and move on. So that's another issue that I think people aren't looking at. But when it comes to the client experience in the end, when everybody you have to choose from as a provider, let's say you have a new diabetes diagnosis and everybody you go to is thin to underweight because you know the field of dietetics is full of disordered eaters not getting treatment. Mm-hmm. I was one of them for many years. Yep. There, there you go. So you've mm-hmm. seen it, you've lived it. <laughs> so you go to somebody very young, very thin, middle to upper class, everything they know about people with your lived experience, they got out of a book. And we know how that can be woefully inadequate when like these textbooks generally don't try to get any context from people actually having the experience. So they've been fed a bunch of bias and lies about you. So when you go in, you have to deal with them saying dumb shit like, oh, I'm sorry, I should have asked if you could that here. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> you have to deal with them counseling you on avoiding fried foods. And I've even had people say to my face in a healthcare setting, um, you know, it's not good for you to eat fried chicken on a regular basis. And first of all, okay, you didn't ask for a food diary or any kind of food recall. Why do you think I eat fried chicken all the time? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and even at the time that this was said to me, I was fully plant-based. And because I'm a mixed culture kid, my mom does not know how and never has had any interest in learning how to fry chicken. Like if we ever had it as a kid, it was a big occasion because that's not my mom's cultural foods at all, like Southern soul food. Mm-hmm. And she was also trained to be biased against it by people at the health department. So she was like, oh, that that American black food is poison. So we weren't really allowed to have it. So basically there's no world in which any of my health outcomes have been influenced by fried chicken. <laughs> like <laughs> never. But well, that's the type of whack, inadequate, ridiculous counseling you get when the person you're dealing with is full of bias and doesn't understand that you're a full human being. And for them to understand you, they have to talk to you. You cannot look at me and know what my cultural foods are. You can't look at me and know whether or not my eating disorder is motivated by a drive for thinness or a drive to be perceived as my true gender, like not me personally, but in general. And that is why it's so problematic that there are virtually no dietitians to choose from who have my lived experience. That basically means nutrition counseling for certain people, just totally ineffective and harmful. And I feel like even if the dietetics field did have more represented, more diverse representation, like as for people in the field, even the education that we received lacked Mm -hmm. cultural diversity. I mean, I can just, you're talking about fried chicken. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people about choosing brown rice over white rice. It's, and and now that I think about it, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's, it's just, it's one small part of a large span of things that have to do with wellness and nutrition and your health. And really brown rice is going to make that much of a difference. And I can actually remember having a conversation with someone and I could tell she was distraught. I mean, she was Mm. just like, I do not want to do this. Why are you telling me? But yet I continued to push forward. Essentially, you know, shame-based motivation is what I was doing at the time. And I, and I, I'm saying this now because I, I would never do it now and I wish I could go back and, and change it. I can't and I'm moving forward, but hopefully she has too. Um, but yeah, that's what we hope, right? It's, yeah. it's so insidious to me because I do believe that the majority of people who decide to go into healthcare or decide to be dietitians, they are helpers. They want to help people. We want to stop people from suffering from preventable illnesses. But the training that we're given, that's not what it leads to. 
we basically create an environment that supports disordered eating. We create environments in which joy and eating don't belong together. Mm-hmm. We make an already difficult experience, and that is being a human, no matter which body you're in, even more difficult, and managing chronic illnesses even more just miserable. Mm-hmm. And I just find that part of me just feels like it's almost unforgivable because until we stop the machine, like the people who are doing the training until the training improves, we are just churning out people who will do harm. Mm. That wasn't their intention. But when you go into the school environment, that's a, a perfect microcosm of how hierarchy impacts how we live. Even if when you got to your program, you believed all foods could fit, by the time you leave, you probably won't believe that anymore, or you wouldn't dare try and tell someone that in a counseling setting. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like it's difficult for me to hold a lot of compassion for that because the people who are doing this, they are generally much older than the students. And you're trampling on the intuition or the wisdom that the students come to us with. And replacing it with this really toxic messaging. And in that messaging, like the white rice and the brown rice is a perfect example. We're teaching people that a certain type of diet is superior to all others. Mm -hmm. And it mixed in with that is more white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And if the rest of the world has been eating these foods since before you could even recognize Eurocentric cultures. Who are we to believe that these newer cultures know so much more than these cultures that have existed for millennia? It doesn't make any sense. Only white supremacy delusion would make us think that's true. That like, oh, nutrition science that's barely 100 years old knows better than everybody else. What are the chances? Uh, yeah, not great. Okay. So let's go back. Uh, I, I have kind of a big question here. Uh, you know, your book, it, it takes on a very, a much more inclusive approach to, I want to say intuitive eating. Like as I was reading it, I was, I was reading it through, I think you even wrote it through an intuitive eating lens, um, listening to your body, trusting your body, honoring your hunger. Um, uh, but obviously, a much more inclusive approach, in my opinion, you know, intuitive eating, body respect, and liberation. So reading this book uh, was a reminder to me that a journey of intuitive eating, body respect, body acceptance doesn't look the same for everyone, which is something I honestly have to remind myself constantly because just like I don't live in a diverse community, I don't see a diverse set of clients. And that's not because of well, maybe I am doing something wrong. I don't know, but maybe it's also because I I don't, you know, have any marginalized identities. I'm a white woman. I don't I don't know what it is, but that's a fact. So reading your book was helpful for me to get a better understanding of, oh, yeah, it's not just these, you know, middle upper class women that that need this this kind of help, right? It's also men and people with all types of, you know, monetary needs. Anyway. So, my question is is intuitive eating as a way of living, is it, as it is written, inclusive for everyone, or is it just another form of oppression disguised as being inclusive? Like the original intuitive the, eating book? The original, the one that we're all yeah. familiar with, the 10 principles of intuitive eating. <laughs> I feel like there's still restriction there. There's still a desire to control the body there. And it's, It feels more like an entry point, not the destination. And I'm not even sure I believe that the framework I presented is a destination. I mean, the invitation is to go deeper and learning to trust the body you were raised to believe was untrustworthy. And to some extent, I think everybody has been told their body can't be trusted. Public health has told us that, like, be afraid of food. Um, even the dietary guidelines essentially is telling us that when it's telling you to learn how to clock portion sizes, even when you're not on a diet, for that to be your default, that you never try to look inward for how much is enough and what you really want. 
But if you are in a body that's always being questioned. So if you're a man who loves men, you've always been told what you do naturally, mm, question it, don't trust it. It's not normal, quote unquote. So I think there's really no room for that in the original framework. It really is like trying to break away from how toxic extreme restriction is and how harmful you know, intentional dieting is for the body. It feels like step one to me, yeah. but even it, it just still really feels like the drive for thinness is still there and fat phobia. It, there's still room for fat phobia while working with that because we've seen people use it. They sell intuitive eating packaged with the intention of weight loss instead of the intention of trusting the body wherever it lands you. Which I would I would say is is not an approved way to to use intuitive eating. I mean, right. at least Rush and Evelyn Triboli would never I mean they they've even said it on their, you know, on their website or on their social media that when, you know, like Noom, for example, they did that. They called it out as an intuitive eating way of losing weight, which which is it's it's incongruous. It doesn't right. you know, I think that they even said once the two co authors said that they didn't um what's the word? They didn't, uh, when you had the little R in the corner of, oh, they didn't uh, register it or trademark it. Yeah. Trademark it. Thank you. Yeah. For various reasons. And because of that, people have latched on to the intuitive eating framework because they know people like that idea, but have connected it to weight loss, but in a, in a non-approved, uh, way, but yeah, I yeah. do agree with you, you know, in reading it, I related to it in so many ways because I come from a place where for many years I was controlling my body and dieting and trying to stay a, stay a certain weight, but that's really it. Like that's, and, and that's, and so the book sp- spoke to me because I think that's, it, it's the, the very, the very, it's the surface level, uh, help, I think, in many ways, which is why I, as an intuitive eating counselor, I, I, I obviously I go beyond the 10 principles. I just use those as a, as a framework. Yeah. Um, but I think your book, it went even deeper, especially, obviously, as you said, for those marginalized identities, which is so helpful and, and is needed. And I think for when they wrote it and what they were trying to do, they knocked it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And I, people continue to grow at like the minute your book is published, you probably already start changing your mind about some things. <laughs> sure, I'm sure. <laughs> so I certainly don't want to give another writer heat, but it we're limited. I mean, probably limited by the time that it was written in and even their lived experience. I'm sure the sexism was on another level when they were younger. So our lived experience just influences everything. And I think if your lived experience is treated as neutral, a lot of times you don't notice it. Like only recently am I hearing people say like, oh, this is coming from my perspective as a white cis you know, person. But that wasn't a thing people were saying just two years ago. So the book is all that it could be at the time it was written, I'm sure. And it certainly has helped a lot of people. But even the encouragement to stop eating when you're full can feel like too much of a restriction for a lot of people. When people have a lot of trauma around food, that can be like an impossible request. That can feel like a trigger. So even trying to remove that feels like that's a next step. And just learning to trust that what you did in the moment was the best thing for you at the time and that that can continue to change. And that some people are using food as a coping mechanism. But if I, as a counselor, as I, as a dietitian, don't have a replacement for that, who am I to snatch somebody's coping tool out of their hand? Like, I don't know if people's coping mechanisms, even if they're quote unquote maladaptive, like a coping tool that we know does do harm to the body, like smoking or something. If that is keeping that person alive, do I want to snatch that out of their hand? 
And how can I really know what purpose that tool is serving? So a lot of times we pass judgment on people's coping tools, but we don't know what it's, what function it's serving in their life. Right. Which is, yes, I, I, I agree, which is why it's, it's, so important to if you're going to see an intuitive eating coach or a coach in this in this field is is also you know aligning that with a therapist and someone who can help mm-hmm. you with with that with that part as well. I think that that's that's like, like that's the perfect mix. I feel like if this is if this is the area you're you're moving towards, you want to find more body respect and body trust and listen to your body and. Um, and you don't want to use food to cope anymore. I mean, not that it's bad, but you're, you're ready to move forward. Well, that's going right. to take also a therapist uh, and that's okay. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's a great uh, combo. Uh, I love to see that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even anytime we, if we're comfortable or if it's safe to do so, even when we disclose the way we've gotten support from therapists or mental health professionals, I think can help destigmatize getting that type of help because for a long time we were all told that only the most faulty of us have mental health problems and that is ableism that's extremely harmful but it still serves as a barrier to a lot of people getting the support that they need but if you are under chronic stress and you're a human being it is normal for that pressure to start to wear you down. And it is normal to benefit from additional support from somebody who could point out tools to you that maybe you've never heard of, or maybe you didn't feel qualified to experiment with on your own. I have found therapy extremely beneficial, but I've also dealt with a lot of stigmatization around it from like... (laughs) I had this one lady, uh, I was applying for a different, I think I was going a step up in my life insurance at work mm-hmm. and I was denied and I called about it because I felt like I shouldn't have been. And whoever this little customer service person was, um, no compassion, no tact was like, well, it's the mental illness. It's the mental illness. You're high risk. And I'm like, what mental illness? Because I didn't perceive anxiety and depression as something that someone would very dramatically say, it's the mental illness. <laughs> I just didn't think, I'm like, it's not that mentally ill. It's just like mentally ill light. But even that right. is my internalized ableism. Cause I'm like, oh, I'm just a little, a little mentally ill, <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But you know what? Life insurance companies are the worst anyway. Gosh. <laughs> They'll latch on to anything. I mean, anything. Oh, okay. So let's, let's dive in. We were talking about therapy. So this next question is a perfect uh, segue. So when I work with clients, I often end up having conversations about them with sitting with their feelings, which as human beings, especially ones who have been taught to push away feelings, it, that's, that can be really hard. Um, so the idea of feeling the discomfort instead of actively trying to push it away and get rid of it. So you talked about this too in your book and you brought up the importance of not just reading the messages and tips from your book, but actually making small steps to heal over time, starting with sitting in the discomfort that may be there as you're reading you know, the words in your book. Uh, so you say it took us years to internalize negative messaging decolonizing the relationship with food in our body will also take time. Uh, So can you briefly describe what it means to decolonize your relationship with food and your body? Yeah. Uh, Decolonizing. Now that's a term that people are using on a lot of different levels. Like some people really are linking that to land back and really trying to reserve reverse some of the things that were done from a settler colonialism perspective. But when I use it, I'm talking about decentering whiteness in our wellness, in our food preferences, in what we think is a good body and allowing room for who we actually are and understanding that there is no hierarchy, that the body you're in is a good body. 
And if that's a trans body, what you will need to feel safe and comfortable is different from what a cis body will need to feel safe and comfortable because of the world around us, not because there's anything odd or unnatural or different about your body. So even some of the heteronormativity I'm seeing as part of the fallout of colonialism, because not all cultures believed that gender is binary. So even releasing that and understanding that if you know in your heart of hearts, you were assigned no gender, because it's taken me a while to feel crystal clear on it. But that's because the language wasn't there because it simply did not exist in English at the time. But I feel like I've been trying to explain since childhood, I didn't get assigned to gender. Like everybody keeps telling me, oh, you're a little girl. And I just feel like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know what that means. So really allowing yourself the freedom to just be and to understand that sometimes the tools to fully show up as yourself may not even exist yet. So like sometimes I wonder, how do I project no gender when all the clothes are culturally coded to be attached to gender? Like there are very few things that we see as just neutral. And even with food, how can you allow food to just be? How can you allow your body and your taste buds and your individual preferences and the comfort foods of your childhood that were laughed at at school or you were told were too stinky for the break room. How can you allow all of that to just be? And how can you drop all of that messaging that says your food's not enough, your body's not enough, your way of being is not enough? And it really, it cannot be done in a day because I'm constantly noticing and having pointed out to me, this is the, another benefit of being around people with different lived experience, is that people can reflect back to you where programming from your childhood is informing you in the present, and it's not congruent with all of your other values. It's really hard sometimes to notice this stuff on our own. So, so much of this healing is also going to happen in community, but that's another thing that can be challenging if you've been trained to internalize bias against yourself, you may not have any other Black friends. You may not have any other trans friends. You may have unconsciously removed yourself from other people who you feel like almost out you as yourself. And I certainly, it's bizarre when we see it done in ways linked to identities that you can see, but people still do it because the human mind is very strange. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) There's going to be layers and it's going to take a a while. So showing up with compassion for yourself, I think is the most empowering thing you can do through the whole process. And then accepting that the work may never be over. I mean, you may get to a point where you're tired of working on it and that's okay too, but there's always probably going to be another layer you could get into. I know when my therapist told me when they said like, what if you never find total peace with your body? Or what if you never find your quote unquote people? Because when I was really small, I used to fantasize, oh, I'm going to find a culture or a country where I fit in. Mm -hmm. And when they presented the possibility that that does not exist and that maybe part of the human experience is just accepting that nothing's ever going to be perfect, I felt like they just reached inside my chest, Indiana Jones style, and just ripped (laughs) my heart out. I did not want to hear that. It's like the worst news ever. But I found that it's, it's just the truth. It's that. Being a human is a rocky, challenging experience. And when we naturally, because life can be painful, when we try to opt out of feeling it all, we're also reducing how much we can feel all of the joy of life. So I understand from a trauma-informed perspective, 
that we're not all ready to go all in with sitting with discomfort and feeling our feelings. And that sometimes you're going to put two toes in and run off for a couple of months or even years. And that's okay too. But knowing that when you don't feel it all, you don't feel it all. Okay. I'm going to end this episode with two quotes that I love, which there are so many quotes. I mean, your whole book is underlined. So I had to, I had to be very choosy here. So you wrote, freedom to present your authentic self is a key factor in your wellness. I think that's beautiful. I'll say that again. Freedom to present your authentic self is a key factor in your wellness. And then I'm going to end by saying a quote from you. There is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Pleasure is your divine right. There's nothing guilty about it. You deserve to live a delicious life. Um, I have an Etsy shop and I might have to steal that for some of my decals and give you credit. Yes. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yes, I'll accept payment in decals. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Dahlia, thank you so much. I want to ask you, uh, where can listeners find you on social media and beyond? So I can put that in the show notes. Well, I recently, very recently, returned to Instagram. So it's named after my podcast, Body Liberation for All. Um, I literally lost access to my own name when they decided to randomly close my account in 2021. Ah. And so you'll see an account with very few followers. Come join us. (laughs) I don't even think I follow you, so I'll have to do that. Yes, I desperately need... More numbers. Okay. Um, and also on LinkedIn, I'm a little more active there. There, it's just Dahlia Kenzie. And really, I think the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is to hop on the mailing list. I don't know if everybody knows what Substack is yet, but I think Substack is great. So you can follow newsletters there, or you can just go straight to dahliakenzie.com and jump on. I have a free body, it's basically like a binge eating awareness guide and a guided meditation. So Ooh, I love that. Definitely not going to cure binge eating in like five pages, but <laughs> it's to raise awareness about like maybe what else you could potentially be looking for when you're binging and um, how to give yourself what you want and how to be kinder to yourself. So that is one of my free opt-ins to get you on the mailing list. Oh, I love that. I will put that in the show notes for sure. I might even try that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, okay, I'm not a huge fan of meditation, okay? But I'm a huge fan of like short, guided, meaningful meditation, yeah. you know, like once a week or so. Whenever I, I tell people I meditate. More into, I'm trying to get more into recording them. And I will say it has taken, I don't know, maybe like 25 years for me to have a meditation practice that I would say has any kind of pattern to it. But a meditation teacher told me that even when I was feeling like, oh, I can't be consistent with it. I can't do it. I can't meditate. They said, you're in your practice, even for like those two years that you didn't ever sit down and do it. That's all part of it. So maybe some people's meditation practice is 10 minutes, once a week, once a month. And that's fine too. Yep. That's me. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I will be sure to bring Dahlia on again in the future. I did forget to ask Dahlia about book recommendations. So some of the book recommendations that Dahlia included in an email that uh, was sent to me after our interview includes My Grandmother's Hands, Challenging Our Internalized Messaging in in an Embodied Way. Uh, Jessica Wilson's new book, It's Always Been Ours, which is great for a more inclusive understanding of where eating disorder motivation comes from uh, for some Black clients. And then The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. I will include the links to all those books in the show notes. Just to end this episode, I want to talk about a favorite new recipe, which I we, we would always do, Nicole and I, on our previous podcast. So I'm going to bring it back. Uh, a mocktail. This is a mocktail. So it's summertime. I'm really into mocktails these days. My favorite new thing to do is add lime soda water, any any type of soda water, whether it's LaCroix or Bubbly, your favorite brand, or just a generic brand of any type, but it needs to be lime. (laughs) 
Um, and then mix it with watermelon kombucha. GT's specifically is my favorite uh, brand, uh, watermelon kombucha. So any ratio you want, I like to do half and half. So um, basically one to one lime soda water to one kombucha and it is delicious. But if you want to mix up the ratios a bit, a bit too, I'm sure you could find your favorite combination, but that's one of my new favorites. And I'll put the, the link to that GT's uh, kombucha flavor in the show notes. And that is it for today. Coming up on August 14th, I'll be talking about five simple ways to jumpstart your intuitive eating journey, anti-diet and body respect as well. Until then, treat yourself with the respect you deserve. Be the best friend you've always wanted and reach out to me at any time on Instagram at Nutrition Unmeasured or via email at trustyourbodyrd at gmail.com. 